thankful to open up God's Word with you, and I don't tell you enough how much I love you, this congregation. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, and we will uh, be studying the first 21 verses of Exodus chapter 15. And once you've found your place there, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard the tremble. Peoples have heard, and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word right now. It is the absolute truth that we need, that we must live our lives by, that informs every single area, God, of our life. And so, God, I pray that we would sit underneath its authority right now. You have spoken. Make and help us to listen, O God. Lord, I pray, lead us into all truth by your Spirit at work in us. Illuminate for us the text of Scripture so that we may walk away saying, you are truly an awesome God, 
worthy of all praise and affection and glory. And we can say, who is like you, O Lord? And the response is, no one. There is none like you, O God. God, as an awesome and incredible, glorious God, we do pray specifically right now for two groups as part of our congregation. We pray for the youth who have left out this morning on the youth retreat, and we pray for our students, God, that they would have a greater view of you by the end of their two days together. That they would come to see how glorious and awesome you are, better than anything this world offers. And God, we pray for the Uganda team as you use them in Uganda, protect them, keep them safe. Lead and guide them, O God, so that the people of Uganda, pastors, unbelievers included, would see you are a glorious God and there is none like you. Be with us now as we open up your word. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Any of you are, uh, let me ask, uh, are you the kind of person that you just naturally sing? You just sing. You're just kind of known of being that person who, maybe, maybe you sing around the house, or maybe you sing just when you're doing chores or something like that, or you, you just, you know, you're whistling, you're singing, you're different songs. You're just kind of, it's, it's a evidence of your happy mood. You know, when you're singing, it's hard to be really unhappy about something, right? Anybody that kind of person, you just sing around the house naturally. You may not, you may be that kind of person who's like, I only sing in the house. I'm that kind of person. No one in the world will hear my voice outside of these walls. But you're just that kind of person. You're just singing, you know, right? And you're singing because well, something has made you happy, something, something you're, uh, you enjoy, something uh, you know, you're joyful about. It's just your natural response. You just sing out loud. You just sing, right? And what I'll say, what, what's similar about our text today in Exodus 15 is it is a song as well. Exodus 15, 1-21 is a song. It's Israel's song they sing. And they're singing it because they're also happy and they're also joyful because they have been miraculously, miraculously saved from their enemies. And so their natural response is to sing. Is to sing. That's what they do. And they don't just sing any type of song, Right? They sing a song about God. They sing a song about who God is, what He is like, what He's done for them, His power and His attributes, His characteristics. That's what they sing. That's what they're singing about. They're singing about God because this God has saved them and He's also shepherding them so that they can sing and will sing and must sing to Him. And so what we're going to look at today is three points of what is included in Israel's song. What they're singing about when they sing to God and about God. They, in their song, bring up different characteristics and attributes about God. Their song says and brings up God's dominion. It brings up God's distinction. And it brings up God's dedication. Those are three big themes that is incorporated into their song. And so I I just want to look at these first ten verses right now and show you how when Israel sings... They are singing about how God has dominion over all things. Look at this in the first 10 verses. They're singing, right? The the, the words for singing is all over the first just two verses. Sang, song, sing, song, praise, exalt. That's what they're doing. They're singing. They're exalting. They're praising God for who He is. And particularly, they're praising God because He has dominion over His enemies and over His creation. 
And particularly, they're singing about just how he has shown his power over the demise, how he's shown his dominion over the demise of Pharaoh. You know, we all enjoy irony in some sense. If you don't know what irony is, it's, it's, it's the kind of irony that we like to see when a bully gets a taste of his own medicine, right? He picks on the wrong kid. I remember I was, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I worked at the junior high. And one of my jobs was to watch over the 7th and 8th graders in the gym, make sure no fights broke out, stuff like that, that they weren't doing anything crazy. And there was just this, you know, typical punk kid. And, uh, and he was picking on people. He was, I mean, I already knew I was about to have to get on to him. Well, he went to a smaller little kid, and, and he jumped on his back and picked up. And I said, oh, here I go. I'm going to have to go take this kid off, beating this kid. And that little small kid turned around and smacked him in the face. And he kept doing it. And I'll be honest with you. I was at pause for a second to see how this was going to turn out. I was going to be like, hey, man, this kid's getting a taste of his own medicine. He needs a, he needs a beating, right? So I, I may have not been doing my job completely to the fullest extent, but I did let the bully get beat up a couple, you know, a couple of hits in. So let's speak. Uh, pipsqueak. And so, but it was irony, right? That kid, the small kid who was getting picked on, should have gotten beat up. But guess what happened? The bully gets beat up in that sense. And this is what we're seeing in in Israel's song right now. We're seeing biblical irony where the, the Pharaoh, the greatest of all leaders in the land, the most powerful, the greatest, the most awesome, who cannot be defeated, whose demise cannot, be, it cannot happen. God takes them out in a very ironic way. Look at this in the first couple of verses. In verses 1 through 7, God shows his incredible power and how he brings Pharaoh down. Look at the first couple of verses, and particularly in verse 4. It says that Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. He cast them into the sea. And it will go down and continue to unravel this in their song. He cast them into the sea. They sank to the bottom. They were like lead. They were like a stone. And they went down. And the waters covered them. And God threw them into the sea. He threw them into the sea. And here's how it's irony. Here's how, basically, Pharaoh is the object of biblical irony. Is that if you remember in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22... Pharaoh is throwing the Israelite boys into the sea. And now look at what's happening to him. God is casting him, the one who threw God's children into the sea. Now God throws Pharaoh into the sea. God shows his power and his might in this kind of ironic sense of what you did to my people. What you did to destroy them and to bring their demise, I will do to you. I will bring you down now. So God is showing his power and his might in this kind of biblical irony to show that God is the one who raises up leaders and removes them at his will, what Daniel 2.21 says. He does this. And when he removes them, he does it sometimes in a humorous sort of way. If you remember the story in the book of Esther, remember the story of Esther, Haman what did he build? Anybody remember what Haman built? He built gallows to kill who? Mordecai. He, he built gallows 
because he was going to hang Mordecai on those. Who at the end of Esther gets hanged on the gallows? Who? Haman. Haman gets hanged on the gallows that he built for somebody else. Is that coincidence? Does that just happen? No, that's biblical irony. says that God orchestrates and is sovereignly working over all these things. And he brings those people who oppose him, oppose his power, and oppose his authority, he brings them down sometimes in a very ironic way. When they think that they have the power, God shows himself to be the most powerful. God shows his dominion and just how he orchestrates events. Look, church family, this is not karma. I don't believe in karma. Karma, karma says that God is outside of this and he's not in control of these affairs and orchestrations. Here in Exodus 15, we're saying it's pretty ironic, not coincidental, that Pharaoh gets cast into the sea, the very thing that he did to God's people, and it's because God threw him into the sea. God's dominion is shown in just how he takes care of his enemies. But God is also... So shown, his dominion is also shown in his complete control over creation. Just look at verse 5. The floods covered them. The floods covered them. In verse 8, look at this. The blast of your nostrils. The waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. Let's just look how easy God is controlling his creation. Even his breathing, it does what he says, right? Chapter 15, verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. It, it's painting this picture that Yahweh controls creation with ease. He commands creation as easily as what one author says, as we breathe in and out. So how easy it is for us to... God, that's how easy it is for him to control his creation and to wield it as an instrument against his enemies. That's what he's doing. So it's all this language. What we saw in Exodus 14 last week is that all this language from Genesis 1 is now being applied here in, in Exodus 14 and 15. That this God of Genesis 1 and 2 is also the God of Exodus 14 and 15. That he controls all of his creation and now he's wielding it as, wielding it as a... As a instrument to bring Pharaoh's demise. And this is the God who Pharaoh is going up against. As if he has a shot. As if he has a chance against Yahweh. Right? This would be equivalent to a kid taking a, taking a, a water pistol and going to a forest fire and thinking, I can put this out. You like that water pistol sound? No chance, right? That kid's not putting out the force fire. And this is the chance that Pharaoh has up against God, Yahweh. He has no chance. He comes with swords. He comes with shields. He comes with chariots. God comes with his creation and overwhelms him. There is no one who can oppose him. No one. And not only is God's dominion shown in how he brings down his enemies, ironically, not just in how he controls his creation, even against them. But Israel's song highlights God's dominion over and how he humiliates his enemies. Look at this. He just, God just didn't just defeat them. He humiliates them. Because look at this. Look at the, 
Look at the arrogance in verse 9. Look at the arrogance. This is what the enemy says. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy me. You know what they're saying? They're saying, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what I want, and nobody is going to stand in my way. That's what Pharaoh's saying. That's his, that's his kind of thought process. Nobody is going to stand in my way, not even this God of the Hebrews. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get the spoils. I'm going to overtake Israel, and they're coming back to Egypt where they belong to serve me. That's their arrogance. Who cares about this God, right? Who cares about this Yahweh that they say they worship? He's not going to stand. He's not going to stand in front of me. He's not going to stop me. It's kind of like in Psalm 2, if you remember Psalm 2, you know, they, the, the kings of this earth, they want to break their bonds against him and saying, you know, you can't hold us back, God. You can't keep us down. We're going to rule ourselves. You know what God's response is in Psalm 2, verse 4? It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He laughs. That's what it says. He laughs. And it's not kind of like this, like, oh, that was a good joke. It's one of those ones that are like... That's so cute that you think that. <laughs> that's so cute. You, oh, you th- oh, swords. Oh, that's cute. That, that is so cute. That's, that's the kind of laugh that God has when he sees these enemies and saying, we'll overtake them. I'll get what I want. And God says, that's cute. You got your swords. You got your shields. You got your chariots. I'll just use my creation against you because I control it. And I will humiliate you with this. So they come with all their their swords and their shields. And in verse 10 it just says this. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the waters. This is how stable they were. That a took them out. How, How unstable do you have to be to be taken out by a pretty unstable. Especially when it comes from the sovereign God of all creation. And so this is, this is what they're singing about. They're singing about God's dominion over His creation, God's dominion and how He gets rid of His enemies and He humiliates them in the process. So this is what they sing about. This is why they sing. And let me just tell you, Crosspoint family, this is why we should sing, right? We should sing. On the heels of, of Israel's great salvation, their response is to sing. Regardless of what your voice sounds like, the act of singing, what we just did here, the act of singing is visually communicating something. It's visually communicating our thankfulness to God and for what He's done. And that when we respond like this, it's demonstrating our thankfulness to Him. That's why we should sing, because we have many reasons to sing. And the act of singing says something. You know, we don't just sing in our service to fill up 20 minutes of it. You know, I know some of you may think, well, if we don't sing, then Wes is going to preach an hour and a half. We got, we got to fill it up with something else, right? No. It's not why we sing to just fill up a service. We sing because it should be our natural response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's why we should sing. We don't sing just to fill up time. We sing because the Bible instructs us to sing. Colossians chapter 3 says, you sing to God and you sing to one another. 
That's weird. Why don't we sing to one another? It's because by hearing one unified voice, hearing what is being sung, it's encouraging us to continue in the faith. Encouraging us to continue following Jesus. Sing to God and sing to one another. This is why we should sing. So if there's ever this time where you're like, mm, I ain't singing, I ain't opening my mouth. Mm, I'm biting my tongue. Just remember, God instructs us to sing. And we have so many reasons to sing. Right? This display of power and dominion just makes God utterly unique. He's unequaled. He's distinct. And this is the second thing that Israel's song is going to bring up. brings up God's dominion, but also brings up God's distinction. Is that God's power and, and what He does, it, it shows Himself to be utterly unlike anything else. And, you know, over the course of human history, maybe even over the course of your own personal life, We've all experienced different inventions, gadgets, um, you know, fads that, that have made us say, I've never seen anything like this before. Right? You know, for some of you, I know that you were probably there when the will was created. Um, you know, the printing press. I think, anybody hands here was there? Anybody? Okay. I would say Stan Smith was there, but he's not in here this morning. The light bulb, right? The internet. I think we were all there when the internet was created. That was like, we've never seen anything like this before. The iPhone. Whoa, what? Phones can do this, right? Sliced bread. Whoa, we can do this to bread? Right? We can make sandwiches, right? There's been all these inventions, gadgets, fads that have come across human history where it's blown our minds and said, there, is, there has never been anything like this and there will never be anything like this ever again. You remember when they said that about iPhone 1? Right? There will never be a phone like this ever. We're on 14. Like, seriously? We've all had this experience where we felt like something is unlike any of its kind. It's unique and distinct, but... Unlike the inventions of this world, the fads and the gadgets, Yahweh will not be superseded and he will not be surpassed. He is perfectly unique, perfectly distinct. And Israel recognizes this about God in their song. His utter uniqueness. Where they can say in verse 11, who is like you? Who's like you? And the response is, there has never been anyone like God. There will never be anyone like him. Look at what they say in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They, they, are, they recognize what God has done, shows, shows God, demonstrates that God is unlike anybody they've ever met, anybody they've ever seen, that he cannot be matched, equal, contested, duplicated, or opposed. Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt cannot compare to him. And he embarrasses them when they try to. The Bible says a lot of these different things. Deuteronomy 3.24 Oh Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in the heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? What's the response to that question, you think? No one. There's no one like that. Psalm, or 1 Samuel 2.2 This is Hannah's prayer. There is no None holy like the Lord. For there is no one besides you. 
There is no rock like our God. And this is what it means to be holy. To be set apart, utterly set apart, utterly distinct from anything. Totally incomparable. That God is so holy and He is so distinct that it's dangerous. Now that sounds kind of crazy what I just said. Is that God is so utterly distinct and set apart that it's dangerous. Right? Because to approach God, a holy God, so utterly distinct, when we are not so utterly distinct, when we are not holy, is a dangerous thing to do. Because without being made holy, without being made righteous, first, it is dangerous. It is dangerous. And this is why the gospel is such good news to us. This is why. Is that we need to be made holy and righteous before we stand before God. As Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, can anybody remember this verse? No one will what? See the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's why it is dangerous for an unholy person to set foot in the presence of an utterly holy, distinct God. It's dangerous. And you can't, we can't gain that distinction, gain that holiness, gain that righteousness by ourselves. You, we, we need Christ. We need Christ who will make you righteous by giving you his righteousness. And then you need to be made holy. And that's why God gives us his spirit to sanctify us and make us holy. That's the only way. That's the only way we can set foot in the presence of a holy God. To be made righteous and holy by God's Son and Spirit. And the only way that you can be made righteous and be prepared to stand before a holy God is if you repent of your sins, turn away from your sins, your lifestyle right now, and turn to Christ and, and submit to Him and His will and say, I'm unholy, I'm unclean, I'm unrighteous, I'm unworthy. And the only way I can gain any of these things is in Christ. Is in Christ. It's the only way. And this is what Israel recognizes about God. It's that he is utterly distinct. This God has saved Israel. This utterly distinct God. This is the God who also has redeemed us. And so God is distinct. And so what does this mean for us, Crosspoint? What, what does this attribute of God's distinction mean for you and me? Well, it means this. Because our God is distinct and set apart, is that the way that we reflect that our God is holy and distinct is that we also are set apart and holy and distinct. That we live holy lives. That's it. Is that God's people show God's distinction through living distinct lives. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. This is risen, written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What stimulates this? Why should we be holy? Why should we pursue holiness, pursue distinction, pursue being set apart in this world? Because God is set apart from anything in this world. God is holy. God is distinct from all these things. So why? Why? Let me just ask you to evaluate yourself just for a second. Does what you 
watch is what your Facebook post says. Is what how you speak about others and to others. Does what you search on your phone demonstrate that God is different from all other things? Because the danger in all these scenarios, and even more, is that our lack of distinction in this world from the world is communicating that our God is no different from the gods of this world. Is that when we don't live distinct lives, when we conform to the passions of this world, when we conform to the ways and lifestyles of this world, here's what this communicates about God. God is no different than love and sex and money and fame and all these things. He's no different. He's the same. God's people, if they look like everybody else, then it says God is no different than anything else. Our distinction... Our distinction shows what kind of God we worship. And let me just ask you, when you get to that point where their temptation comes in, where you're being tempted to watch something, or go look for something, or do something, or say something, or act on something that is not distinct, that is not according to God's holy standards, here's the question we should ask ourselves in that moment. Why should I refrain from sin in this moment? You can ask yourself that question. Why should I refrain from sin in this moment? Why shouldn't I give myself over to this, to this pleasure or to this lifestyle or, or to this act? Why should I refrain? And here's the answer. God is holy. That's the answer. Why do you refrain? Why do you set yourself apart? Why do you act distinctly? Because God is set apart. God is holy. God is distinct. What other, what other answer, what other reason do we need to live holy lives than our God is holy? Are you living in every area of your life as if your God is holy? And look, if you want to consider more about this topic, the holiness of God, there's a great book by R.C. Sproul. I would just recommend this book to you. Pick it up. It's not long, and it's a riveting read about the nature of God and Him being holy and how great it is and how dangerous it is as well. I'd recommend you picking up that book. But that's the point. Is that Israel sees God is distinct, and because God is distinct, they want to be distinct from this world. Number three is this. In their song, they not only recognize God's dominion, they not only recognize God's distinction, they also recognize God's dedication. That He's dedicated. May not be a word that we use for God all the time, but God's dedicated. He's dedicated to his people and his character. I don't know if maybe this has been a parental move or maybe you've had this kind of friendship in it with somebody where you're like, okay, I got you out of this mess. You, you got it from here. You're on your own. I, I, don't keep calling me every time, you know, uh, every time you get in, in, in trouble, right? Don't, don't be calling me. I'm not going to come swoop in every time you're in a bind, right? You're on your own now. And those are the words that a grandmother has never said to a grandchild. Oh, baby, I'll come and I'll help you whenever you want, anytime you want. It don't matter. Call me. I'll do it. Right? But for normal, sane people, this is what we say. Sorry, grandmothers. Sorry. 
But what's interesting is this, is that God is this sort of dedicated person to his people. Is that he does deliver them. He does save them. He does bring them out of Egypt. But it's not to throw up his hands and say, you're on your own now. I got you out of Egypt. Go on your merry way. You you can figure this out on your own, right? No, God is dedicated to his people. He doesn't just save, he shepherds his people. He governs and he guides them. He's the God who preserves and protects his people. He's the God who saves and sanctifies his people. He's a warrior shepherd, in a sense. Look at this in verses 13 through 16. So after after God stretches out his right hand and delivers his people in such a glorious and mighty way, the Israelites then extol this about God. You have led. You have led. And then you go down. You have guided. This God is not one who just delivers, but he guides and directs his people. Because Israel's problems are not over. They got out of a big problem, right? They got out of Egypt. They got out of slavery. But the road ahead is not much easier for Israel. As it says, that there's going to be difficulties that lie ahead. They're going to come in contact with all these other people that are named here in 13 through 16. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites, all these people are going to get in Israel's way and are going to oppose Israel and are going to threaten Israel's well-being. And God says, when you come up against those people, you don't need to worry because I didn't just save you. Now I'm shepherding you and going to guide you and protect you through the midst of these things. He's not just saved them to let them go, but he is actually shepherding them along the way. And what's great about this verse is it tells you the heart of God as well, is that he leads and he guides in a certain manner. And it's not begrudgingly. It's not bitterly. It's not, oh, God, y'all could just get your act together. Come on, dragging them along the way. It's not done in bitterness or as burdensome. But look what he says in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast what? Love. This is the heart of God in his leading. That it is not burdensome to lead and guide his people. It's not a heavy weight that he has to endure. He's not bitterly dragging them along the way. Right? That God is doing this out of his steadfast love for his people. This is who God is. He is a God of great, steadfast, loving kindness for all generations. And let me just ask you this, Crosspoint Church family, believers. It's not a burden. It's not a burden for God to lead us. So why is it such a burden for us to follow and obey Him? God does not do this. He does not lead in God out of burden or bitterness. And so why are we so burdened and bitter in our obedience and our following him. Maybe we might say inconvenience. What God asked me to do is just always inconvenient. It's always not on my timetable. Or what God asked me to do is so hard. It's so difficult. Or what God is asking me to do is just so uncomfortable. It puts me out of my comfort zone. These things make it a burden for me to follow and obey God. 
Let me just say this. That is not the character of somebody who has been given new birth and has been born again. What 1 John 5, 3 says is this. If you've been born again, God's commandments are not burdensome. They're actually, they bring joy to obey. They bring us joy to obey God. Because guess what? What God asks of us is for our good. It is for our good. And so, Christian, let me ask you, please. If it is not a burden, if God, if God leads us out of his steadfast love and it's not a burden to him, then why do we not obey out of our steadfast love for him? If we truly do love him and are committed to him, it should not be a burden for us to follow and obey him. And we should not make the justifications and the excuses of, it's inconvenient, it's too hard, it's uncomfortable. Is it not for your good? And he's, has he ever led you somewhere that is not good? And when he leads his people, he's not just leading them in his steadfast loving kindness. He's also striking fear into the hearts of his enemies. Because look, verse 14, the peoples, those people who were outside of Egypt, they got the newspaper that morning, right? They heard. They heard what God did in Egypt to the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They heard what happened. They heard. They know who the big boy in the block is. And so he's going to shake and tremble. Those people, they're going to shake and tremble because they know that this people, Israel, we're not going to be able to overtake them easily because they were with that God. Was anybody in school, was anybody that small kid in school? You know, anybody? I mean, I'll say it. I didn't hit a growth spurt till you know, around 30, 31. You know, I, I didn't have this muscular physique in high school, as you see now, that intimidates people and causes fear and trembling. So if you're the small guy, here's the best piece of advice. Become friends with the big guy in your class, right? Because if you're walking behind the big guy, if you're friends with the big guy, nobody's messing with you, right? You're friends with the big guy. Like, you, you, just, you don't have to even answer. Like, hey, dude, like, I'm, I'm, my big friend, his name was Jake. And that just sounds big. I was walking with Jake. I, I was with Jay. He's my friend. If I was going to get beat up, it was going to be under his watch. But nobody wanted to beat me up because I'm just such a nice guy and likable, right? It was because I was with the big guy, right? And this, this, this is the reputation that Israel has right now. We can't mess with them because guess what? They have, they worship that God who has destroyed the biggest leader on the planet, Pharaoh and his army. We cannot mess with him. They will recognize, the nations will recognize this God. And what do they do? They hear and they tremble. They are dismayed. Trembling seizes them. They melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. They are still as a stone. This, this, this is what is, strikes the nations in their heart. Is that Israel is now associated with this God. And they know Him by name. They know what He can do. And let me just ask us this, Cross Point. Does our obedience, does our following God display that we follow a God who is powerful and can be trusted? Or do when people see us in our actions and our speech, and they may say something to the effect of like, that's your problem? 
and the God that you worship can't figure that out, that's pretty insignificant. Is that sometimes when we fret and we panic and we get worried or we talk in such a way, we say things that communicate that our God is really not that powerful, that he's really cannot be trusted. And you know what the nations in the world looks at that and says? That's pretty insignificant to worry about, to get panicked about. If your God really is powerful, couldn't he figure that out? We need to live in such a way, to speak in such a way, to act in such a way that says, I, I, don't, have, I don't need to worry, I don't need to fret. I'm committed to this God. And he, he is the big boy in town. He is the big friend. Because he is a warrior and a shepherd. And he is a good shepherd when he leads his people. As we know from Psalm 23 and as we know from John chapter 10, we have a good shepherd who leads us well. And it's for our good. And he leads us to a direction. There's a direction that he's leading us to in these verses. Look at verse 17 and 18. He's bringing Israel to a, a place, to an end. He's not just leading us or even Israel aimlessly through the wilderness like, hey, where are we going? Like, Is there an end to this trip? Like, No, he is leading us, God. His people somewhere to his holy abode, to his sanctuary, right? Where he reigns and cannot be deposed and no one can overtake him. And he will dwell there. And we will dwell with him in security and peace and love in his kingdom. Where the Lord will reign forever and ever and ever. That is the end. That is the goal. That is where we're going, Christian. To the place where... God reigns. And so Israel's song, it recognizes things about God because it is about God. It recognizes God's dominion, God's distinction, and God's dedication to His people. And just for a piece of application for us as we think about how we worship here as a church, it matters what we sing. It matters what we sing. And Israel's song should be an example for us on the types of songs that we should sing. We don't, we don't just sing any just random song that comes on the radio. We don't sing any random song that we just heard and it sounds really catchy and everybody else is singing it. No, Israel's song here in Exodus 15 is a good reminder for us that we, together as a body, should sing songs that are about God and are God-centered and highlight the attributes of God and who He is and His power and His love and His distinction and His holiness. That's what our song should be about. And I hope that we've done that here. And I think we have done that here. But if we ever get into a place where like, you know what, this just sounds catchy. We should just sing it. And the song's like, well, that song's all about me. When I, there's more I and me in that song than there is God and He Right? Me, me, me. I love me some me. I love me, me, me more than you. I, me, me. I love me some me. Worship songs are not about us. They're not about me. They're not about I. They're not about you. Who are they about? God. Thank you. The children get it. Our songs should be God-centered, acknowledging and recognizing His character and His attributes highlighting those. In our songs, God should look big and we should look what? 
small. We should look small. Because who deserves the, the praise and affection and the glory? God. And for you this morning, maybe a reminder for you is that God, God has saved you if you are a Christian. God has rescued you out of the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But maybe right now you don't feel that sustaining presence. Maybe you don't feel like God's leading and guiding you. Maybe you feel like God is silent right now. That you can't hear. What is He telling you? You feel like God's kind of left you deserted. He saved me, but He's nowhere to be found right now. Church, let me just say this to you. That's not the case. That's not the truth. That despite what your life experiences and what you may feel in this moment, alone, forgotten, that that's not true. It may be what you're feeling, but feelings are not always an accurate barometer for truth. Because what we find here is that God saves His people and He secures and He shepherds them. And from the foundation of the world, God has been caring and guiding and providing for you and your needs from the foundation of the world. And that God has given you everything you need in this life. He's given you His Word. He's given you His people. He's given you His Spirit. And so Christians believe this. Believe that God has saved you and that God is shepherding you right now and that His Spirit is at work in you. This is what? Allow the Bible to interpret your experiences and your feelings. Allow the Bible to speak louder than your feelings. And so when you're tempted in that moment, when the tempter comes and says, God's forgotten you. God didn't care about you. You're in this situation because God doesn't want anything to do with you. He doesn't like you. He doesn't love you. He's done with you. Sure, He saved you, but He doesn't want anything to do with you from now on. Retort back at the tempter and say, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Because that is who God is. He saves and He shepherds. And that this God, He saves and He shepherds us to an end. He saves and shepherds us to an end. Is that He's saving, He's shepherding us so that one day together in God's holy abode, all of God's saints, all of God's people will get together and sing. This is what we're going to. We began with singing in Exodus 15. We began our service with singing. And guess what, Charles Point? Is at the end of our days, when we are in God's holy abode with God in the new heavens and new earth, guess what? We're going to sing. We're going to sing. Would you turn to Revelation 15 for me? And I'll go ahead and tell you what's on the, what's on the playlist in God's new heavens and new earth. You might be like, what, what songs are we singing? What, what, what's good up in the new heavens and new earth? What's on, what's on God's Spotify playlist? Let me just tell you this. When we get to the new heavens and new earth. There's going to be a song that we sing. This is what God's people say. This is what they sing. Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses. What song is that? Exodus 15. This is the song of Moses. 
They will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are the deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Crosspoint family, Christians, we sing here together as a local church because guess what? One day we are going to be together in God's holy abode. and We are going to sing the song of Moses, acknowledging God's dominion, God's distinction, and God's dedication to his people. Let us sing because of what God has done and what he is doing here right now. And I would just implore anyone who is apart from Christ right now, who does not submit and follow this God, let me just ask you one question and leave you with this one note from this sermon. Reading Exodus 14 and 15. Unbeliever, is this the God who you really want to rebel against? Is this the God you really want to stand up against? Is this the God you really want to oppose? Is this the God that you want to be an enemy of? And do you really think you'll win in the end? Do you really think you'll win in the end? Pharaoh thought so, too. And look at his outcome. You don't have to meet God as an enemy. You don't have to meet God in opposition. You don't have to meet God in rejection. You don't have to meet God in rebellion. You don't have to meet God as the the Lord who is a warrior. You can meet him as a savior and a shepherd who is gentle and kind. This morning, repent. Stop this current lifestyle that you're living in rebellion. Turn to Christ and say, I want to trust Jesus. He is the only way I can be made holy and righteous before a living God. And you, if you do this, will find the grace and the peace and the steadfast love and the protection of this mighty warrior who is also a kind and gentle shepherd. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you this morning for your kindness to us. That you are a God worthy of all praise because you are holy and mighty. And I pray if there is anyone in here in this room who does not know you, that God, they will repent and trust in Christ. Meeting him as a saving shepherd and not as a mighty warrior who punishes sin. Lord, we love you. Let us sing in response to your glory. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.